This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by TeamPay. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to automatically enforce spend policies and gain full transparency into requests for funds, all the way to reconciliation? And what if you could do that while empowering your employees to buy what they need when they need it? TeamPay gives total control and real-time visibility into spending. TeamPay's distributed spend management platform automates the purchasing workflow and gives you proactive controls and real-time visibility over company spend. And TeamPay also empowers your employees with a user-friendly purchasing experience. When employees make a request, TeamPay automatically enforces policies, issues intelligent payments, and automatically sends the transaction data to your accounting system pre-coded. To learn more about how TeamPay modernizes how you manage spending, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash TeamPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-E-A-M-P-A-Y. So I think behind every good fraud is two things, a whistleblower and a cultural problem. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And I'm Kelly Richmond-Pope. Kelly, thank you for joining us here at Sage Intact Advantage. This is uh, day two or three of the conference. It's day one for me. Yeah, this is day two. The The accountant day was yesterday, I think. All these feel like five-day conferences these days. <laughs> Every conference feels like day five. Um, yeah, they're, they're always looking for coffee and hot water. But Kelly, thank you for joining us. Um, I just go through all the sessions and I find one that looks interesting. I know you had a session, uh, ethics and why ethics and culture matter. Yes, it's um, coming up. And so, oh, you haven't done it yet. I haven't done it yet. Oh, so if you're listening, go attend the session, but we're not broadcasting live, so this is not going to help you. Yeah, this is going to be like two weeks later. Two weeks later. (laughs) So we we will just assume it was amazing. Of course. I've had the uh, privilege of hearing you speak uh, in the past at a a different conference, so I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Well, thank you. Yeah, on a similar topic, kind of. I I think the last one was on fraud. Yes. But but we know that fraud and... and, uh, ethics and culture are all interrelated right. subjects, right? ethics, well, fraud is the absence of ethics. So they're all related. And just so our listeners who aren't aware of who you are, like, so you have a documentary on Netflix. You have TED Talks out there. I think your TED Talk has a million and a half views I saw. That, that's impressive. What else do you do? Because you're obviously multi-talented. You're a professor. I'm a professor. So my, um, my training is, um, that's my home. So I'm a teacher. I feel like I'm a teacher. But um, I um, am an associate professor in the School of Accountancy and Management Information Systems at DePaul University in Chicago, and um, I teach managerial accounting and forensic accounting, and um, I'm a filmmaker. I host a radio show on WGN Radio on Monday nights, a true crime radio show from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. in the morning. And you do that live? I do it live. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Then you got to get up and go to class. (laughs) So I teach three classes on Monday. My last class ends at 9.15. I'm in the studio at 10. That's a long day. That's a long day. So so it's true crime. Do you cover like financial crimes? We cover all kinds of crimes. So um, I have a co-host. His name is Bill Cressy. He also teaches at Governor State in the Chicagoland area. And um, we cover all kinds of crimes. So this past week, we had Al Capone's granddaughter on. And uh, she had just written a book, so she was just talking about the life of being Al Capone's granddaughter. Wow. And then um, we then talked about real estate scams and how celebrities are being used to um, get people to come to these real estate seminars that end up being just sort of fraudulent. So mm-hmm. we talk about all different kinds of things. So why is ethics and culture so important to you? Because I, I think you've talked about, I think your TED Talk is on whistleblowers, and that's a lot of culture-related um, but people don't have the courage to be a whistleblower because of culture sometimes at the company. Well, I think um, what we're seeing right now is um, when we see all of these fraud stories and we think about them being ethical lapses, 
it really comes back to culture. So take Boeing, for example. Boeing is a culture story or an a ethical cultural deficiency story because you have a pilot who knew something was wrong, reported it, and no one listened. And so now we have deaths. So that's a cultural issue as to why we want to bury that type of information. Um, you think about what's happening with um, the opiate crisis, mm-hmm. and, you know, where doctors were getting paid to, to find people to give these prescriptions. That's a cultural issue. So I think um, bef- behind every good fraud is two things, a whistleblower and a cultural problem. So that's why it's important to me. So in many cases, the, like these frauds, like people saw them happening, but the culture just prevented them from. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like if we can get away with it, we, we do. And so um, that's not good. So I think it's something that we need to talk about. And I think um, people need to um, evaluate the culture that they work in and what they contribute to that culture. Um, and how it relates to whistleblowers is how do we embrace a person that is coming forward and saying something? I mean, sometimes it's hard to wrap your hands around somebody that's doing something different than you are or saying something different than you are. So in the case of Boeing, my understanding is that pilots testing the new software, the the new planes in the simulators, detected issues. They reported them or they felt, it was like they felt pressure from management not to bring up these issues. Yeah, culture. What should Boeing be doing or what should they have done to make that not happen? Sure. I I think that... The one thing Boeing could do, or any company, is you have to listen to your, your first line of defense. And that's your employees. And if, if in Boeing's case, it's your pilots. If I look at my um, organization, which is DePaul, it's going to be either students or professors. Like, you want to listen to your first line of defense because they know. Mm-hmm. And so when you silence them, what do you have? You're going to have a problem because either people aren't going to say anything or they're going to just turn a blind eye to things that that they see all the time, which is not good. So I think that um, what they should have done is had a better reporting process where that person or people can be embraced, should be embraced, and not scared to come forward. So actually celebrate your internal whistleblowers. Or, celebrate I mean, might be a strong <laughs> word. Um, um, encourage. Encourage. You it. know, because, um, well, I guess celebrate's a good word because you want you want to know if your airbag isn't working, if your person on the assembly line knows that there's a deficiency or if they know that you put some type of product that's going to explode on impact, then you want that person to tell you. You don't want to find out the hard way. Mm-hmm. You think it would be rewarded more because if you're a CEO of a company, you don't want a bunch of emperor's new clothes people telling you how great everything's going and you're, you're just blind to this real risk that's there. You say that, but actually sometimes we do. I mean, think about the kind of people that a lot of us surround ourselves by, our friends. And typically your friends aren't going to go against you. You know, you when you have something that... Well, that's why David and I hang out. <laughs> he tells me what he's thinking. But you think about when you have a controversial issue that you're deciding about, yeah. you have two people you can call. The one that you know is going to always disagree or the one that you know that's going to agree with you. Sometimes we might choose the one that agrees with us so that we can get the outcome that we want to have. And so I think that it's, it's human nature to want what you want. And sometimes you don't want to hear that other side. But you, you need to have both people, both parties in your life to stop you from those bad decisions. So if you have a, a management problem, if you want to call it that, a cultural problem, like, can you change your culture? 
like the behavior? I think you definitely can change your culture. Um, now, this is a very broad um, question, broad answer, but, you know, think about how um, things change with a new C-suite, how things change with a new employee, new employees, how things change with a new building, how things change with a new logo. So I definitely think you can change your culture. You just have to want to. Any tips? Like, I mean, I know there's no just easy solution to these things, right? To changing a culture. Is there like something, what's like the best tip you have for doing that? Like well, for a, for a traditional firm, right? Like, well, let, let, let's use an example. Let's yeah. use um, Theranos and okay. Elizabeth Holmes. We love that a story. Place that had, the place that had a very wicked culture, you mm-hmm. know? There was only one choice, and that's to follow what everybody was doing. You couldn't be a naysayer. And so how do you change that culture is just by listening to people. Mm. Maybe ask them to report something anonymously, put it in a box, and you read all the comments together, and you address them either in a newsletter or a, a video. I mean, you have to, you have to be diligent to want to change your culture if you notice you have a problem. The first thing is, do you know you have a problem? Sort of like Alcoholics Anonymous. You got to know you have a problem first. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Bill.com. As a listener, you've probably heard Blake and I speak about Bill.com on numerous occasions. It feels like they're discussed monthly in either new news or new announcements. But I'm betting there are some things you don't know about Bill.com. Did you know... Customers use Bill.com platform to process over $70 billion in payments for the 2019 fiscal year, that they partner with several of the largest U.S. financial institutions like Bank of America, PNC, and Chase. More than 70 of the top 100 U.S. accounting firms use Bill.com. Bill.com not only connects to all the popular accounting software providers, they also connect to many of your favorite apps as well. To learn more about how Bill.com's AI-enabled financial software platform creates connections between businesses and helps manage cash inflows and outflows, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash bill. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash B-I-L-L. Well, speaking of organizations that may not know they have a problem, the PCAOB, I have been following uh, some of these stories recently in the Wall Street Journal. Sure. Right? Like, the, the, it's, just, it's just a major, I don't want to swear on the podcast, but it, like, there's, a, there's a big problem uh, there in that, um, well, first there was the KPMG scandal involving mm-hmm. uh, in, in inside information going from PCAOB inspectors to KPMG mm-hmm. yes. partners telling them which audits are going to get inspected, right? Like the worst ethics violation I've uh, heard of in a long time, right? So, But what's interesting about that is if we talk to anybody walking around here right now and ask them, are they ethical? They're all going to say yes. Right. But then when you start giving them various scenarios and ask them to reason through different, different things, you're going to see different answers. Mm-hmm. And so I think even with the KPMG PCOB situation, they didn't think they did anything wrong when they were doing it. They're like, I'm a good person because we think of fraud really in a one dimensional way. I don't steal people's money. I'm not murdering anyone. So I'm a good person. But there's lots of ways you can commit crimes that violent crimes are not the only way. But I think that we have convinced ourselves that crime looks a certain way. And if I don't do that, then I'm a good person. But you can still break rules and you can still go to jail. So, like, what can they do? You know, do you think it's it's savable that the PCAOB can actually become a force for good in the accounting world? Or is it just a giant waste of money? Because up to this point... Well, I think with the PCAOB, okay, so let's, that's one bad apple. Yeah. Um, I don't think the whole thing is, is over. But I do think that they're going to have to be 
more um, strategic about how they train. And so you need to give people some exact scenarios of what an ethical lapse looks like. You know, for example, if you go and get hired, you can't pull information. Like, people need exact Mm. definitions. Because I think even the way we teach ethics in college, um, we often teach it from a very theoretical perspective. And you really need practical application. You know, practical application. Um, I had a student who um, wanted to order um, something from online. Let's just say it was a, a book bag. And their roommate had ordered the book bag, and they were already in the, they were in the same household. And you could get 20% off if you were a new customer of this, of this company. And the, the student had already used the um, discount before, and the roommate had used the discount before. So, they, so the student said, well, I really want this book bag. If I use my dog's name, how would they know? And so point being, we need exact examples of that's wrong, <laughs> Just because you won't get caught doesn't mean that it's not wrong. But I think that we need to show people examples of what an ethical lapse looks like because we're just so bent on, I haven't stolen money, I haven't murdered anybody, I'm a good person. And when you go to those outliers, it leaves, the, it leaves a lot of room for people to say, yeah, I'm a hire, David. Um, and I'm going to get, David, bring your information over here and we're going to use it. And I imagine in the accounting industry, it's kind of ironic, right? Because... CPAs and accountants really pride themselves on like we're ethical. And then every single person's probably fudged their timesheet. Oh, sure. Every, probably. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Everyone's probably photocopied their kids' birthday invitations yeah. on the work computer, you know, at some point. Now, let's not say everybody, but at some point, there's something we've done. Yeah. And so some people can stop themselves. Other people can't. So... Ethics training is all great. We should all do it. But sometimes the underlying structure, the the underlying way things are set up, causes people to behave unethically simply because of the incentives. So I'm thinking in particular of audit, right? The audit profession where there's all this talk about how we need to do better education for auditors so that they, you know, actually do their jobs and, and whatnot. But when an auditor is selected and hired by their client, like that's the way we've got it set up in this country, they're naturally going to act in the best interests of their client more of the time than the general public, like the stakeholders, the investors, and whatnot, because there's money on the line, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Ron Baker likes to say, uh, you can't be independent when there's a financial, when you're getting paid, right? You can't be independent. Sure. What do you think about like changing up the way audit firms are selected? Well, first, let me go back to your first comment, because I don't think all ethics training is good. I think it's done poorly for the most part. I think that that's our first problem Mm -hmm. is um, we're not pushing people to think about the scenario hard enough. You know, we're treating it like here are the rules, check the box. And that's not how you have to do it. You really have to put a person in a scenario to make to force them to think about, hmm, have I done that before? And that's some of the things that we'll do at the beginning of my session. So I have some scenarios. We have to poll and we get some poll information. And every time I've done this, you see a lot of variability. Now, there is a right answer. But the way we rationalize that, this answer in a large group sort of changes. So that's the first thing. I think that um, all ethics training is not good. I think it's um, there's there's a little bit of good and a whole lot of bad. And I, I can see based on me, you know, uh, after a 20-year career into it and, you know, you have to do these trainings every year, right? The, uh, the ethical training, the scenarios were just so far-fetched that they weren't probably representative of 99% of the employees. Sure. It was like, oh, yeah, some king in some country wants to 
you to build a building in his place and like it was the it was the outliers. Yeah, it was the outlier, and, and it wasn't the day to day real ethical questions that probably happened to every single employee. Right, and that's what you need. You need those type of scenarios to push them to think. For example, um, the one that we're going to do today is um, you took a cab and you um, the cab driver gives you a receipt. And they um, also get, they give you a blank receipt, and they also give you the actual receipt from the meter. Okay, before you continue, is this like going to be a quiz? Like, Blake and I can answer a yes/no. You can, sure. Okay, so this is the scenario. Okay, I'm putting you guys in a scenario. You ready? Yes. Okay, so you take cab. Forget Uber. Forget Lyft. You take cabs. I still well, take that, cabs. That's the first problem. No. No. <laughs> okay, so you take a cab, and at the end, they hand you uh, your receipt, and they give you a blank receipt. Because cab drivers do that. Yes. Sometimes they'll even say, how many receipts do you need? Has that ever happened to you? I've had the blank receipt for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so when you go to submit this receipt, you add $2. Is that okay? No, I would not do that. No. What if you tipped? I would consider the tip to be part of the fare. Yeah. So you might add $2. Yeah. Yeah. If I, t- if I, if I actually gave them the $2. If I gave the $2, I'd write that down. Yes. But is it anything wrong with just adding $2? It's just $2. And what if you use the blank receipt and you forgot what the amount was? So you're just rounding. Is that wrong? That's like timesheets, right? <laughs> <That's laughs> um, then there's nothing. You, well, I mean, you've got to choose a number. So you try to be as accurate as you can. So, right? you, so you added $2. Is that wrong? So you'd think it was five twenty-five, but I mean, by the time you added the tip, you don't know, maybe... Or even my handwriting. Sometimes I'm just like, is that a seven or a nine? Right. I right. Don't know. So just to make it even, you add $2. Is it wrong? I don't know. Is it wrong? I mean, so this is the, this is the, is it wrong in the big balance sheet in the sky sort of way? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, you know, like, does it, is it material? Is maybe is my question as an accountant. If it's immaterial, then... <laughs> and that's where I'm like thinking this, like... And it's a lame argument. It's like, it's victimless. Like, nobody got hurt. And like, I'm not justifying that. I'm just... But just think, we're in a scenario. Yeah. I'm pushing you a little bit. Because mm-hmm. your first response was, it's wrong. And I said, well, wait a minute. What if you forgot what the fare was? Right. And you're just trying to, you're just trying to guess. And you're just, you have to submit it. Are you going to pay it? Are you going to cover the extra $2? You just added $2. I didn't say you were stealing. Yeah. I just said you couldn't remember. Well, d- did I do it knowingly or? What was your yeah. intent? My, it, it, that's, what's, that's what's hard to know is intent, right? These are the things that we need to talk about. Yeah. You know, this is the way we need to talk about our decision making because it might not be a big deal for us, the three of us, talking about it. But if you have 300,000 employees doing it, it could definitely be material then, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. So I think that we need to be more um, practical about how we approach the way we reason through decisions. I like that. Yeah, less theoretical, more practical. Less theoretical, more practical. And, and the problem, I think, with our profession is because we have a code of ethical conduct, we just sort of look at those things and say, check, 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 check. But right. what are the scenarios that match with those? We don't do. So you really have to push ourselves to think about what would you do? You know, the only problem, Kelly, with this is that uh, if we push the accounting profession to do this, then they'll want to create a rule for every potential situation. <laughs> so we'll end up with an accounting ethics handbook that is 400 pages. That's true. And has 5,000 rules in it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so that was the first thing. The second part of your question was, um, what can we do? What yeah. should we do? I don't know. If I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast with you. <laughs> well, so, so, so one, arg- I'd love to get your take on this. Um, you know, one argument is, let's change up how auditors get selected. So instead of having companies select their own auditors, let's have the financial uh, stock exchanges select the auditors instead. So that way there's less of an incentive for 
an auditor to overlook something in order to maintain that client relationship and not lose the engagement. And I guess the, the, some of the evidence cited for this is that you know, in PCAOB inspections, something like 20 to 50% of audits fail inspection. Mm-hmm. So that means that the people who are supposed to be checking these numbers, right, the, the, the auditors, are doing a bad job in one out of five audits at a minimum. And that's just of the ones we've inspected, right? You know, so, but think about this. Think about other professions. We go to the doctor. We pay the doctor to give us bad news. Mm-hmm. We pay the dentist to give us bad news. Why do we have to be any different? Why do why can't we, in, we incentivize other professions to give us good or bad? So why is this any different? Well, and actually, you brought up the op- opioid crisis, right? It, it, it's people paying doctors for prescription medicine is what the, the, the doctor doesn't want to lose a patient. Sure. So they prescribe the medication. Yes. And they want to get paid. So there's a financial relationship that causes that perverse incentive where the doctor is now prescribing you more medication than you need. You get addicted, right? Like the pain, the pill, uh, what do they call them? Pill factories. And then stuff. the pharmaceutical is giving you a kickback. Right. right. Pharma- and, that's, and ultimately, that's who everyone's going after, right? Is the pharmaceutical companies because they got all the money in the end. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think, I think when you, the pharmaceutical given the kickback is the big issue yeah. because they're the ones that created the incentive. But I think when you think about patient to doctor, you do pay your doctor to give you all information. We don't pay our doctor just to give us good information. So why can't this work the same way? Well, so here's the difference is that I, as the uh, audit committee, well, I guess it depends. Uh, so I, I'm paying for the audit. You're my CPA. I'm paying you to, to audit me. Uh, but that audit isn't really for me. It's for my investors. Okay. So I want the audit to come out clean because I'm managing this company, Right. My investors want to see the truth. So we have different interests. Sure. But then the question becomes, will the um, regulatory agencies really care that much about the investors' interest? I don't, I, I don't know if we can alleviate the problem. Just be good. Just stop lying. I mean, that, 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 that's just about it. I mean, just stop it. You know, <laughs> just stop it. Well, and, and maybe we should really be punishing these crimes. Sure. Because I, I feel like a lot of these uh, auditors get just a slap on the wrist. Right. And, you know, going back to Theranos, if Elizabeth Holmes gets a slap on the wrist, yeah. oh, my goodness, what kind of message is that? Or even even the Varsity Blues situation with the celebrities lying about their kids and in, in playing sports and they don't even play the sports. I mean, mm-hmm. if we if they just get a slap on the wrist, what are we really saying? Yeah. So maybe that's... I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm for uh, you know, drastic changes in, in the way we do things. But yeah, maybe if we just actually enforce the rules we've got, sure, that would help too. Enforce the rules we have. Yeah. Follow the rules we have, then enforce the rules when they're not followed. So how do, um, let's bring this back down to like a smaller firm, right? Maybe I have a small account or bookkeeping firm, I have 10 employees, like what's the best way for me to kind of ensure I have this ethical culture there? Is it, is it just me leading by example? Is it like, are there bigger training programs or groups I could be part of? Um, the one thing I think about is like a big corporation's going to have an ethics hotline maybe. Mm-hmm. But if I'm a smart company, maybe I don't have that. Is there an ethics hotline service I could subscribe to? Like what's kind of, what options are out there as a firm owner? Sure. I think, I think there are a lot of cost effective options. For example, you could um, share an article, like an ethics art, an ethics-related article. There was a really good article in the Wall Street Journal um, a few weeks ago, 
and um, it's in my presentation today. And it was about what expense and what expense reports tell you about your soul. I don't know if did you I, guys see that? I think we covered it on the podcast. Did you talk? Actually. It was the grifter, the rookie, yes. the uh, sidestepper. Like they had these different classifications. Right. Share it. Talk about it. Have a brown bag. Doesn't cost you a lot of money to do that. They're TED Talks. You can share mine. Um, but there's <laughs> things that you can do as a leader that you can share with your employee base that gets the message that you care about how people see ethics and fraud and decision-making. So you don't have to be a large company to show that you care and that you value this. Of course you want to lead by example, but it doesn't take a lot to show that this is something that's important to you. You know, um, there's a good movie, good docu- a docu-series on Netflix it was called Dirty Money, Alex Gibney's um, docu-series. Watch some episodes of that. Yeah. Again, yeah. send out an email. Hey, team, I watched this episode. I watched this show. Would love to have a brown bag and talk about what you think about it. I mean, there's people just want human connection. And so there's lots of material that you can share. You could have your staff listen to this podcast. You could have your staff listen to this podcast. You know, something that we do in my class is um, we listen to the Dropout podcast. And so some of the students read um, John Carew's book, Bad Blood, mm-hmm. but we also um, listen to the Dropout podcast. And so this a couple weeks ago, we had um, Tyler Schultz's attorney in class talking. I mean, there's, there's small ways that you can create a culture that I think we just think we don't have time, but we really do. So, Kelly, you are a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. Which is so cool. And I feel like I'm on late night because I've got this, you know... Uh, <laughs> postcard with your movie poster on it. I'm going to put it on the table right now and the camera's going to zoom in and it's called All the Queen's Horses. Yes. The subtitle is How Could One Woman Steal 53 Million Without Anyone Noticing? Yes. Uh, What is this film and where can we watch it? And what's it about? So the documentary um, is Chronicles of the Fraud committed by this um, woman. She was a city comptroller of Dixon, Illinois. And um, the documentary talks about how she did it. You know, how does one person do that? That's a lot of money. And they're a small town, too. 16,000 people. (laughs) So how did nobody notice? (laughs) Well, this is the thing. Um, There were red flags that were missed. But it's not that that, that people didn't notice them. They just didn't know what to do about it. You know, and so there's lots of red flags. I'm sure if we walked to our room in this hotel, we would notice red flags. What are we going to do with it? Who are we going to talk to? We might not know. So we might just keep walking and keep it moving. And so the same thing in Dixon. People notice things. They just didn't know what to do with it. So, um, so the documentary is really about how something like this not only can happen in Dixon, but can happen anywhere, whether it's a small company, large company, medium-sized company. Um, the one thing that I caution people about um, All the Queen's Horses is don't think because it's a government it can't happen to you. The fraud schemes are the same. The environments change, but the schemes are the same. So if you read a fraud book from 20 years from now, you're still talking about money laundering. We're still talking about embezzlement. We're still talking about financial statement fraud. I mean, we're still talking about the same schemes, just with different players. So um, you can find it on iTunes, um, but I guess iTunes has gone away now, right? Did, is Apple getting, doing away with iTunes? We'll find it and put in the show notes for yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll get to it. Um, but yeah. it's um, YouTube. You can rent it on YouTube, um, okay. Google Play, um, Amazon. And then um, probably your local cable. But your local cable is going to be the most expensive way to watch it. As always. <laughs> well, one of the frauds that we've been really covering the last five, six, seven weeks here um, on the podcast on a weekly basis is the My Payroll HR fraud. Have you heard about this one? Mm-mm, sure, please. So uh, 
God, how do we summarize so, it? Owner of a payroll company in Clifton Park, New York, basically had a bunch of business entities, was borrowing money on fictitious businesses and diverted how many millions of so, dollars? So what he did is he payroll? changed the ACH file mm-hmm. at the last minute and took all the, so he withdrew the money from all the employers. And then that goes to an ACH company to distribute the ACH funds to all the employees' bank accounts, right? Mm-hmm. And he diverted that back to his own bank own accounts. Bank accounts. He's a payroll processor. Mm-hmm. And so what happened, and then there was a bunch of domino effects of so this. So how did a bunch he have of, control to do that? Uh, apparently, the ACH system is anybody can just... Hackable? It's not even hackable. Like It's, it's like a, a spreadsheet. File. It's a text file. Somebody oh. just changes it. And on top of that, which is even crazier, is apparently like a law firm has to keep their clients' um, escrow funds in an escrow account. Mm-hmm. Apparently, if you run a payroll company, you can just keep the funds commingled with your other funds, hmm. which is, from an industry perspective, is like a little on the crazy side. But, but he, 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 for a decade, apparently, after the API is dug into this now, he's been running this fraud for a decade of this kiting between the one company to the other company. And then one day it just became this $36 million fraud. Wow. Like that. So what was your question, David? I don't even know. I was like, I was, I was going to give you the next movie idea, ah, but, I, I, but you no, haven't heard of it. I'm so I'll we'll have to fill you in. I'm one and done. <laughs> um, I'll use film as a platform um, to train and teach. Um, I just um, finished creating this um, investigative immersive experience um, with my co-creator, Ronnie Jackson, called Red Flag Mania. And so it involves, or it includes a short film. So it puts you in this scenario and you have to solve this case. So you watch a film, you're given a case box of evidence, you have to solve the crime, and then there's a big reveal at the end. So I'll use film that way, but I'm not doing a film again. I'm one and done. done. I'm a one-hit wonder, sort of. Kelly, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? I'm on all social platforms. So um, I'm on LinkedIn, which by my name, Kelly Richmond Pope, um, I'm on Instagram, but that doesn't feel very professional. Like, my Instagram is, like, pretty pictures, but I don't really have any pretty accounting pictures up there. That's oh, that's why we haven't done an Instagram yet. Yeah, it's weird, right? Podcast. Yeah, we're it's just, just like, what do we take a picture you of? You know, if you, if you think about, like, all the all the platforms have their, their place. So you think about Instagram uh, being very personal in pictures. Yeah. Facebook very, feels very personal. So, like, when, like, work people want Facebook, I'm like, eh, no, I don't <laughs> want that relationship with you. I want you on LinkedIn. Um, and then Twitter seemed, Twitter and LinkedIn seem similar to me, um, except the Twitterverse is just very crowded. Um, but social channels are just um, at Kelly R. Pope. But then LinkedIn is just my name, Kelly Richmond Pope. Thank you for your time today, Kelly. Thanks for having me. It's fun. 